This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. Clem, publisher of the Plaid Horse Magazine. And I am Sissy Wicks, editor of the Plaid Horse Magazine. And you're listening to Horses in the Morning Weekend Plaidcast Edition on Horse Radio Network for Saturday, September 24th, 2016, Episode 1. This episode is brought to you by OpponaExchange.com, the website where horses are sold. Good morning, horse world. Horses in the Morning Weekend Edition presents the Plaidcast. We are so excited to be here on the first edition of the Plaidcast, the Morning Weekend podcast of the Plaid Horse magazine. Um, I'm here with uh, Sissy Wicks, the editor of the Plaid Horse, and Glenn, the producer of the show. Hey guys, welcome to Horses in the Morning. I'm so excited to have you on board. We're so excited to get started on our first podcast. Of course, Piper, you've been a guest on our shows many times, uh, doing mostly reports from shows because you're never home. Yep. <laughs> well, and it's kind of going to be different now. You're going to be hosting, and this is going to be a once-a-month episode, the fourth Saturday of every month here on Horses in the Morning. We've started kind of our weekend magazine editions, and in your case, it really is a weekend magazine edition. I love the name Plaidcast, by the way. Thank you. That's perfect. And Sissy, it's good to meet you as well. Well, I'm happy to be here, Glenn. This is the first time I've had this experience of a podcast, although I am a podcast aficionado given the amount of driving I do. Oh, great. So this is very exciting and a, and a first for me. I don't know why people aren't listening to podcasts. I, you know, I actually still meet people who have no idea what they are, and you kind of have to go through. It's online radio. It's on demand. But I think I think that's changing. I think we're, we're, we're getting to a point where people are at least know what they are now. On uh, demand. The world is about on demand now. Well, and I know, Piper, you have a ton of followers online and social media. So hopefully some of them will learn what podcasts are, too. Absolutely. It's a great way to learn about the world we live in, especially, as Sissy says, I travel a lot, too. And uh, getting to learn and have interesting content while you're on the move is invaluable. Well, welcome to the Horse Radio Network. Horses in the Morning is here now, going to be six days a week, and we appreciate you being part of that every month. Uh, Have fun, guys. So Sissy is a relatively recent addition to the Plaid Horse team. She started in June. Sissy, do you want to tell us about your experience in the horse world before you started with the Plaid Horse? Sure. I have been riding since I was three years old. When I twisted my mother's arm enough that she took me to the barn closest to us, which happened to be... Louise Sirio's mother's, and her name was Mary Warner Brown, and in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. And Louise and I grew up together, riding ponies and driving ponies and swimming ponies and the whole nine yards. Um, I went to college and continued to ride during college as much as I could. I came out of college, was on my way to law school, and decided just to take a year off and do horses one more year. And that was in 1980. So I have been a professional in the horse business since then. Um, I have done the 
typical 30-horse boarding business, always in New Jersey or Pennsylvania, and traveled the A circuit up and down the East Coast for what seems like the majority of my life. I have four children. I am married and live in Unionville, Pennsylvania. I recently got my large R for hunter and equitation judging, which has been really exciting and uh, a new dimension to the business, which I have quite enjoyed, maybe because it's new, but nonetheless, I've quite enjoyed it. I have been in the last five years looking to do something more than just ride and train. Uh, so I, I got my judge's card and I started writing for USCF and trying to exercise that side of my brain instead of just my back. And lo and behold, got a call from Piper in June saying they needed an editor. And it was really the job description I would have written for myself. So I'm very happy to be here. I still ride and train for Caves Farm in Baltimore, Maryland. And uh, this is an exciting day to be on this podcast. Piper, one of the exciting things about joining the Plaid Horse is the innovations that you have in mind. I, I remember seeing my first plaid horse at Devon when Cindy Taylor started it, and it was newspaper stock, and it was basically photographs with small captions. It seemed kind of like a hometown publication. And I was so excited when I met you that day at Devon and saw that you've gone all glossy, and you and I have great plans to uh, improve and increase the amount of editorial in the magazine and all kinds of schemes. So uh, I'm happy to be a part of this. And, and I'd like to hear, as I'm sure the audience would, more about your plans for the Plaid Horse. Absolutely. Um, I purchased the Plaid Horse in the spring of 2014. And every issue we have been growing and expanding. And I'm very excited. Um, this year, we started a merchandising line. We're starting the podcast and um, every day someone comes in with new ideas that we keep pursuing and um, keep trying to make the industry more educated and different opportunities for people instead of just riding and training to contribute and be a part of this industry. Piper, I thought that what we talked about initially was so interesting and as someone who has been just in the in the uh, dregs and the the uh, the rat race of riding and training. I thought it was so interesting when you explained to me the difference between the industry and the sport. Can you talk about that a little bit? The industry is what most of us are involved in. Um, the sport is very exciting. The sport is the Olympics. It's McLean Ward and Kemp Farrington, and we love to cheer for them, and we love to cheer for Team USA, and we all love to watch Grand Prix. But that's not a realistic riding goal or training goal for almost all of us. Um, I'm never going to ride at the Grand Prix level, but I love this sport so much and I love thinking about it and I love being involved in it and I love riding and I love showing and I'm an example of being part of the industry. Um, I want to go to horse shows every weekend. I want to spend my time there, but you know, it's much more about the people involved in the sport and the people showing locally and at A shows and buying horses and training horses and doing their best with young horses. And that's really what the plaid horse is all about is the experience of the people, you know, working and training in this sport. At this point in the podcast, I'm going to introduce 
introduce Tucker Erickson, who is a large R-rated hunter and equitation judge, an amateur rider, a corporate executive, and now a horse show manager. So certainly a man of many hats. Hi, Tucker. Good afternoon. How's everybody? Great. Thank you. Um, Tucker, this year, I think for the first time from our conversation, you managed uh, two weeks of country air in Kentucky and also uh, originated and managed uh, your brainchild, which is the Mammoth at the Team Horse Show, which is held at Hamilton Farms, the home of the famous home of the USCT, in August to really rave reviews. It was impressive how well the community embraced that show. Um, not only the horse community, but the local community. There were great articles written and seems like uh, that was quite a groundswell to get that show off the ground. So what I'd love to talk to you today about is an article that will appear in the next Plaid Horse magazine. Um, and it is really the flip side of the horse show experience. So the perspective of the horse show manager. Can you give us a little bit of a rundown on that? Absolutely. Um, I think the biggest surprise being on the managerial side of a horse show is the amount of time that the managers must commit all year round in order to pull off a successful event. Um, you know, and time is something that's so precious to all of us. So finding a couple hours every single day throughout the year to work on staffing and facilities and vendors and prizes and, you know, everything that goes into a horse show is pretty overwhelming. And I think that is what to me was the biggest surprise um, in both country air and starting up the new Mammoth at the team. Uh, Country air, you know, has been in existence for decades and Frankie Stark, the owner has built that up over the years. And, uh, I think Frankie was smart in getting um, putting the team together that she did because J.P. Uh, Bordelow was my co-manager and he runs many shows at that facility. And, uh, you know, knowing the staff and the ins and outs of the facility is critical. And if you don't have somebody that is familiar with that um, and knows how to make that facility right, um, it could be really scary. And I was lucky because I'm almost at the team as well. The staff there that oversees and manages that facility was available throughout the horse show um, at our disposable to deal with the ring and all the issues involved at that facility. So I think that would be my greatest advice to people is to make sure that you bring on a team that is extremely familiar with the facility and that you have many, many meetings um, leading up to the horse show starting probably nine months out and uh, every month and then weekly um, when you get, get close in. Well, is it the minutia of the details and the everything from the ribbon ordering to the food? I mean, is it that or is it trying to uh, get ahead of what may or may not go wrong? I mean, wh- what, what is the most taxing part of organizing this kind of event? Yeah, I think it's both. I think because there are so many horse shows in our country today, from the unrecognized series all the way up through the big double-A um, factories that exist, you know, the only way you're going to have a successful event 
is if you do get the details right, because people are looking um, for something special, something that's a little bit more boutique something that differentiates itself from those factories. <laughs> so I think it's, you know, really important, whether it be hospitality or the prizes that you offer, um, uh, you know, anything special that you can add to a horse show today um, will in the long run make it successful because there's too many options. And um, to me, it's not worth doing it unless you're going to make it special. Talk to me about cost. Um, as somebody who has been a horse owner and rider and trainer for God knows how many years, um, what we hear from our owners and trainers and uh, participants in general is, oh my God, look at the cost of the horse shows. What is going on here? And I think the pervasive belief is that the horse show managers are getting richer and the, um, the exhibitors are, are bearing the brunt of that, that cost. Can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first, with Country Air, um, it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to rent that facility. There's, you know, a fee for every ring, every schooling area, every day. And, Will you give uh, us an example? I think it's really interesting. I, I hope we're not speaking out of school for the horse park, but like, no, what does it I cost to rent the Alltech Arena for one day? Yeah, I don't know exactly what the Alltech was, but we chose not to run the Alltech this year because the cost was some. Um, going to be double of what we could bring in in entries to use the ring. So um, I remember that. So it must have been, you know, you know, close to 20 grand just for that arena. But um, the, you know, each ring has a, a, a fee associated with it from, say, five to $20,000 a ring per day. Um, so if you're not going to bring in, you know, the money by sponsorship or entries, um, you know, you're going to lose your shirt. And I think, you know, that's the thing that, um, exhibitors and trainers need to realize is that, you know, anything that they can do to support the shows that they love um, in the long run will help keep costs down. And they have to understand that managers, you know, they might have um, some good years of good weather and a good uh, calendar cycle, but then there's going to be years where bad weather and possibly viruses and other issues that pop up that will really cripple a horse show. And uh, there's a lot of expenses that, you know, deposits and things that you have to come up with up front that are, you know, non-refundable. And uh, so the horse show needs to try to strive to make a little bit of money um, so that uh, it can it can build up a little nest egg for the, the things that are going to go awry eventually. It's just a matter of when. Right. <laughs> the, um, you know, the costs, you know, are pretty overwhelming. I was astonished with um, just my... Uh, first time doing the Monmouth at the Team Horse Show, there was almost $8,000 in fees just to go to associations, whether it's USHJA, USEF, um, McClay, Rygate, Marshall Sterling, NJHSA, NJPHA. It goes on and on, but, you know. I mean, but aren't those passed on to the exhibitors? Or is yeah, this a competition I mean, fee as well? Yeah, I mean, there's um, there's fees associated by the number of entries, so it's coming out of your entry money, um, and you know you don't quite realize how much that all adds up. Um, oh, so we're not you know, talking about the we're not talking about the fee that you pay. That's a line item on the entry blank. This is a fee that the horse show has to pay to those associations. Exactly. exactly. Okay, gotcha. 
right. And um, so, you know, that's a fee that, you know, I didn't figure that was going to add up to be quite as much as it was. Um, but, you know, and even doing hospitality at horse shows, I mean, you can, you can get sponsors and, and so forth, but uh, it's very hard to cover all the costs. And I think uh, this year at Country Air, we did hospitality. We did that pavilion for the first time. And we charged Barnes just $1,500 for the two weeks. And they had breakfast and heavy appetizers and drinks every day in there. And it was well-decorated. And it was a great place um, for exhibitors and trainers um, to hang out. And it was received um, significantly by the community. It was great. But, you know, we, we probably raised... 80% of the cost of doing it. Um, but again, it helped us differentiate. We kept the cost low. We put banners in the rings for those trainers that did that. But, you know, for 70, 750 bucks for a week for, um, for them to enjoy that, um, you know, I think is well worth it in the long run for everybody. It's just hard to build that up so that it even covers itself um, because of those costs. And for instance, with the horse park, if you're going to use somebody from the outside, which they really discourage, you ha- you're going to pay 30% on top of what your your um, costs are to go back to the horse park. And I know the wow. horse park has, yeah, and the horse park has a lot of pressure to um, at least break even. So the state of Kentucky, I know, has told them that, you know, they have to break even, and they haven't in the past. So there's, a, there's more pressure upon the horse shows. They added an extra fee this year on top of hundreds of thousands of dollars in rent. There was an extra fee of like $11 per horse that um, that we had to pass along to the exhibitor. And that was directly a, a horse park fee that was new for 2016. And, Which we uh, as, exhibit- as exhibitors don't know. All we know is that we have to pay yet another $11 per horse. So it's interesting to me anyway to hear the other side of the story. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's ways that we try to figure out how to um, to give back. For instance, at Country Air this year, um, JP and I were looking for ways to attract the grassroots jumpers because, you know, we knew we were going against some FEI horse shows. And we knew that that didn't make sense for us to target those people. But what else could we do to bring the jumpers in? So we split the Children's Adult Jumper Classic and offered 10000 for each of them. And by golly, we had 105 Children's Adult Jumpers by the second week. So, you know, I think when you give back, um, you know, you're going to get it back, um, you know, if you're doing things right. So, you know, you have to pick and pick your spots where you think it makes sense. Um, you can't be everything to everybody. You know, the cost of running an FEI horse show you know, didn't make sense for us. And there was a whole lot of them, and there's only so many FBI horses in the country. So our our approach was a different approach, and it ended up panning out nicely, um, which we were excited about. And then, you know, the other thing that we did, which was like a last-minute call, we had so many, I think we had 70 pre-green horses, and we decided the last minute to give back, let's do a California split for the pre-green incentives. Um, which, again, was huge bucks because half of the entry fee for that class goes back into the program. Right. <clears throat> so, um, you know, so it was another huge expense. But in order to attract those numbers in the future, you have to find ways of um, making sure that they're going to get the points and the potential earnings um, to justify competing in a horse that has those kind of numbers. So those are some of the tough decisions. And, you know, and 
the same token at Monmouth at the team, you know, because we were dealing with first year um, with rating issues, and we also decided to go appeal to the grassroots. So we had some rated 100 days, and we had unrated days, and um, what we decided there was we wanted to do a nice $10,000 derby, but we geared it instead of doing a recognized derby. We did it on the unrecognized day, offered $10,000, and 5000 was paid out like a normal class, and the other side was targeted to pre-children's for $1,000 and the, pony, the children's great. ponies for 1000 bucks. So you break it down that way so you can attract the numbers, and we had almost 80 in that. Um, and then next year, we're going to do a recognized derby as well as an unrecognized. So well, plus, with that horse show, you're navigating the maze of, uh, of mileage dates, right? Of mileage exactly. slash dates. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, we were um, denied the A rating because of moving um, to the new location. But our whole goal was to help the USCT Foundation to promote their causes, to help um, with their building and renovation funds. And, you know, for the first few years, we're really running the horse show as the, you know, not-for-profit so we can put money back into the facility and really form a strong partnership with them. So some of our sponsors were, are actually giving directly to USET and not to us because of what we're trying to do with that facility to raise awareness for our Olympic team and, and to promote that. And my cousin, Michael Dowling, who owns the horse show with me, you know, we were looking for a way of giving back to our community we've been both in New Jersey for so many years, and the USCT just made complete sense to us. You know, well, that's a store. great segue into my question of discuss a little bit the diff- not the difference, but your view on profit versus nonprofit shows. I believe that Country Air is a for profit, and yep. uh, Monmouth at the team is a not for profit. So, um, do do you believe that the the trend of the horse show world is toward uh, non profit or not for profit, or do you think that uh, where do you think it's going? Yeah, I think you know I think both avenues will continue to flourish. I think the non for profits are um, are going to be able to gear themselves to a more boutique feel and perhaps get more community and more corporate support um, because they're going to be rallied around a cause um, that people are excited about. And they'll get a lot of volunteers that they can make things special and and do the unique services and and extra stuff. So I think, you know, both both models will continue to flourish. I mean, Country Air has been a for-profit, but, you know, Frankie continues to look for ways, um, like running the hospitality this year at a loss, by differentiating herself from all the other horse shows in Kentucky at the park, she paid forty thousand dollars just for landscaping to make the rings extra special. Right. Um, you know, by offering that extra prize money. So you know, and I think people at that show can feel like the owner is not trying to take every last dollar from the show. She's trying to give back and to find ways to differentiate herself. And you know, on the flip side, with Mama as the team. You know, we're doing the same thing. You know, we had live music five out of the six nights because we wanted to make our hospitality special and, and make the corporate sponsors feel like, you know, we're really building a community that not just a horse show. Yeah, there's a great horse show going on in the background, but people are, are really coming together as a community in the hospitality pavilion. And that's what wants to get those great corporate sponsors involved because, you know, a lot of those businesses, thank 
the bank that we had, PPAC Gladstone Bank, they, and the um, and the doctor, they brought everyday people for lunches, you know, staff, clients, and used it as a great way to entertain not only their employees, but clients. And um, Like a race you know, mate, they, yeah. Yeah, so it's, um, you know, that was exciting to see, and now that they know that, you know, if you're going to have the catering capabilities to do that, they don't mind, um, you know, giving and helping because it's good for their business, too, so it's a win-win. And I think, you know, that's what we're we're trying to do is is partner with people that, you know, create a win-win. Manhattan Salary came to us, and they had never done sponsorship support shows before, and they were excited to get involved and gave us a budget, and we had a beautiful jump built for them customized and came up with some concepts for some parties and um, ice cream socials and giveaways and to kind of get their brand outside of New York City um, to get the people in the country to get in there to make a day of going into Manhattan to do their talk shop shopping. And, um, you know, so if you can help people build their business and you embrace them and figure out ways um, to give them more than you're getting, and, you know, it's a win-win. Uh, same with the Nature Conservancy. We, they don't have a lot of name recognition. So by getting them there and promoting their name um, so they can promote their efforts and their goals as a not-for-profit, you know, if they feel like they're getting more connections and more relationships out of it than what they're paying, then they'll continue to support it. So it's, uh, it's a lot of work. And that's what, you know, that's the time that you have to commit by meeting with each of these the vendors, the sponsors, the you know your your main stakeholders. You got to meet with each of them a few times a year to make sure you're listening, and then you can run your horror show to help um, the clients embrace them as well as your show. Yeah, I mean, you have to know a lot more than about a horse show. I mean, that's that's really PR and marketing and networking and all of these skill set that you're corporate job brings to to this. So that's really interesting. I, I know we're running out of time, but briefly, do you have any ideas on how to stem the increases in the horse show, in the cost of horse shows? Um, are we talking about developing more grassroots shows or more local sea shows? I mean, what what about the, 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 the families and the riders that are having a tough time affording this sport anymore? Yeah, I was talking to my team at Mammoth at the team and thinking about because we know, you know, we ran the horse show at a loss this year and, you know, we did that knowingly. We spent extra money in areas that we didn't have to, but we consciously did it and talking about, you know, how we might have to raise some of our fees next year and then we came up with the idea of maybe we could offer some scholarships for some entries for some kids who couldn't otherwise afford to show at the horse show. Um, so I think everyone's got to to really work together to figure out how we can keep um, those people involved who are willing to to work for it, maybe an essay contest um, uh, or so, something like that. The, you know, what, what's unique about the Monmouth at the Team Horse Show is that we have some rated days, some unrated days, some hunters, some jumpers. And I think, you know, you can... Um, you can keep some of your costs down by, you know, having some unrated days and meeting the needs of those people while at the same time, you know, having the recognized days um, that helps people get, get their points and achieve their goals that want to do it at a more serious level. But, yeah, it's, it's very concerning to everyone that, that the costs are rising and that it's, 
you know, an upper upper middle class and, and wealthy sport. And yes. it's going to be the challenge of the future for horse shows to figure that out. But I think next year we're going to try the scholarship route for some kids who can't afford their, their entry fees and see how that works. Sounds like a great idea. Tucker, thank you so much for your time. This was very educational and um, always great to hear from you. And I will see you around the ring. Sounds great. Thanks for chatting. Today's premier sponsor is Epona Exchange. Epona Exchange offers a premium online experience for horse buyers and sellers. Epona Exchange lists horses for sale, stud, and lease from trusted sellers. Visit EponaExchange.com today and receive 50% off a featured listing. That was really interesting, and you can read more about what Tucker has to say about horse shows in the October issue of the Plaid Horse magazine, available at Indoors. Um, In the September issue, which is on newsstands now, we have Aaron Duffy on the cover, and we have a number of great articles, including a preview for the World Cup Finals coming up this April in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, The Plaid Horse is really excited to have a vendor booth there and have a presence. Um, Do you want to talk about some of the September issues to see? The September issue was very fun to write. We got a a big bump from the Heritage article, which I loved writing, and I think it's a very innovative program that Andre is starting, so it'll be interesting to track where that goes in the next year or so and what um, kids it actually helps. Um, It was very exciting to see how well our Olympic contenders did, and I think it's, again, I will underscore this, I think it's important for our readers and for our listeners to follow that level of rider because that is what we all aspire to. And we we aspire to to, to be the best that we can be and that is the upper echelon and, and that's the standard by which we should all be aspiring to. So... Uh, and then the Aaron Duffy article I thought was was lovely. I am very East Coast centric, so it was great for me to learn a little bit about Malibu, California, and the way things work out west, and um, th- the fact that you can get on your horse and look through its ears at the Pacific Ocean just slays me. So <laughs> I think it's a very interesting article. We have the Horsemanship Challenge Quiz uh, crossword puzzle which I hope all of you young listeners are doing the crossword puzzle. There'll be one in every issue, and it will help you with your quiz challenge answers and hopefully get you to the finals. So uh, as someone who loves crosswords, and it certainly helps your word skill and your knowledge skill, I encourage the kids to get after that. And we have prize packs available for the fill if you fill out the crossword puzzle and tag us in a post on Instagram. We have prize packs available. We'll be randomly selecting winners each month from the Plaid Horse. And you can read the entire issue on theplaidhorse.com. The Plaidcast would like to welcome Jimmy Toronto. Jimmy operates Jet Show Stable based in Wellington, Florida and Mooresville, Pennsylvania. Jet Show Stable offers training, showing, and sales and is one of the nation's top importers of hunters, jumpers, and equitation horses. Jimmy is a large R judge. He judged the 2006 Pessoa USEF Medal Finals, the 2007 USCT Talent Search Finals, the 2008 Pony Medal Finals, and the 2008 McClay Finals. This year, he is judging, again judging, the Pessoa USEF Medal Finals. 
We've all heard Jimmy do his wonderful uh, broadcasts from various events. He sits on many committees for the USHJA and the USCF. And we welcome you, Jimmy. Thank you, Sissy. So, Jimmy, you're doing the medal finals again this year, 10 years after your first medal final judging job. I, I think that's an interesting juxtaposition 10 years later. In 2006, you judged with Bill Maroney. And how do you think this year will differ with Mary Lisa, given that this year she's the rookie and you're the veteran? Well, well, actually, this is actually the third time I'm judging it. I also judged it in 2011. Wow. Uh, and in 2011, I judged it with Chris Tauber. So uh, this is actually my third time. It seems like I've judged it uh, every five years now. <laughs> uh, they just keep putting me on a rotation, I guess. But, yeah, I think Mary Lisa probably is the rookie this time uh, when they, they hired me to judge, and they gave me a list of people to choose from. And while I haven't really judged much with Mary Lisa, uh, I know her pretty well. I thought I'd be comfortable with her of the list they gave me. And I, in talking to her, I know this was really on her bucket list. She really wanted to do the finals. And, uh, you know, in a way, it was my – it was my job to sort of give her that opportunity. You know, they gave me that list and I chose her. So, uh, you know, I think she's very excited about doing it. And I, and I think we'll gel. Do you think that creates a dynamic in terms of the, the veteran and the rookie? You know, funny enough, uh, the first time I judged it, I was the rookie. I was actually, when I judged it the first time, I only had my small R and I think maybe that's the first time in history that somebody with the small R judged the medal finals. Uh, but I have to say, even coming in the first year with my small R, uh, Billy was great. You know, Billy had judged a lot. He probably had more experience than I did. But I, I think he had a lot of faith in me. He he was very busy with all his other things that he was doing between USHJA and the uh, different organizations. So he actually relied on me to do most of the course. And, uh, you know, we went over at the end, but Billy kind of looked at it and went with it. And while... Yeah, I mean, I was kind of the rookie at the time. I think he really, uh, you know, sort of, I wouldn't say he let me lead, but he sort of, we, we acted together as equals, I would say. That's great. So that's a great segue into something that I have always had a little bit of an obsession with, and that is the course. Um, I think it's such a wonderful feature of these equitation finals that the judges can design the course. Tell me about that process. What factors do you consider? Um, how do you collaborate with your, with your partner, your judging partner? And how do you choose what materials to use? I mean, it, it seems that there is so much available to everybody now, especially with the development of the derbies, that there's a, the, the plethora of, of jump styles and fills and whatnot is huge at this point in time. Yeah, you know, I... Uh... I'm, my, I have a farm in Pennsylvania, so I'm, I'm fairly close by. And in 2011, I uh, I would actually say both times, even when I did it the first time, Conrad Holmfeld was the builder that year. Uh, I get along very well with Conrad. I went over my course with him. He knew the dimensions of the ring. So I would say he really helped me and guided me along that way. But I was there. You know, the, obviously the medal finals doesn't run until Sunday. I probably went. For sure, I went Thursday, Friday, and probably just to finish things up on Saturday. I went every day, 
went through the jump pile, went through every different type of jump. And, uh, I sort of, I picked, you know, I, I handpicked every jump. This will be one, this will be two and, and so on. And, wow. and again, I did the same thing when I did it in 2011 with, with Chris Tauber. Uh, I spent a lot of time there. Chris wasn't able to spend the whole week there. She came in just for the final and, uh, she came in on Saturday and, you know, put in her, a few comments and, you know, a few things of what she wanted, but, you know, I think I have the luxury that since my farm is close by, I'm able to come and go every day and, you know, talk to the course designer, go over the different jumps. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's a that's a luxury that my farm is so close to the arena. Now, in the past, it has been said that the course judged the class. Do you agree with that? And And how would you, how does one avoid that? Because I don't think as a, a judge that's ever your one's intent. No, I, I really don't want that. You know, I think it's a fine line. I think, you know, the first year I did it, I believe there were 298 people in the class. I think they said that was a record that year. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a tall order to have to judge that many rounds. So, you, you know, you want to make it tough enough to separate them, but you don't want to make it so tough that the less experienced kids are, are losing their confidence. So, and Conrad and I talked about that a lot. And I would say the first round was, was tough, but it was a course that everybody could tackle. And then when we brought back our, our top, I believe it was 20 or 25, uh, you know, then we, we turned the screws a little bit. I, I think you've got to be a little careful of that. I, you, you, you know, you've got to make it tough enough that, you know, it, it does separate them because it's hard to sit there all day and have to look at every single rider and every single detail for that many horses. So, in some ways, you know, you, you built a little bit of a tough first line, in my opinion, but nothing that they're going to get hurt. Uh, you know, because as the class goes on and later on in the class, you have to have a time to, to breathe and, and go over your, your standby and go over your top 20. And, you know, if you have to look and, and judge every jump of every round, it becomes a little difficult. So for sure, it's, it's a fine line. You, you've got to juggle that a little bit because you've you got you to gotta keep the riders safe, but you want to be able to separate them. Well, when I was doing research for this, and I looked at the top four in 2006, which was the year you judged with Chris Tauber, it was Maggie McAlary, Julie Wells, Adrian Dixon, and Sloane Coles. Now, three of those young women have gone on to really stellar professional careers, Grand Prix, Hunters, the whole nine yards. That has to make you feel like you got it right in 2006, right? Yeah, I mean, I really thought I got it right in 2000. I mean, you know, I'm not to toot my own horn. I'm 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 very comfortable when I'm holding the pencil, and you know, I really believe that you know when I've done those finals, you know, I judged the McClay finals uh, also, and Jessica Springsteen won the year I judged, and she's gone gone on to to do great things. So, you know, for sure, we you know we always try to get it right. I think I, I've, we've gotten it right. I, I don't think there's been anyone that's been left out of the top group. Uh, you know, and, and there's so many top kids coming through the ranks. There's always some talent that, that you see in those classes. And, you know, unfortunately you end up losing one or two. Anybody can have a mistake on a given day. Right. But, uh, you know, sure, I think that the top group, when you talk about that class, you know, you, you get close to you know, anywhere between 250 and three kids in that class. And to be realistic, there's probably 30 that are coming in that are real winners of that class. And, uh, you know, you're always going to lose a couple of those. But I think 
for the most part, that, of that top group, we you know we, we usually have them write it in some order. Uh, you know, for sure, there's people sitting in the stands that maybe had a little difference of opinion. Maybe <laughs> they had the same top four, but, you know, you see it from a, a different angle and a different view. But, you know, for sure, now that you, you say that, that feels good to know that three of those girls did make it to the top level. Yes. So, Jimmy, this is our first podcast, and we really would like to bump ratings. So why don't you give our listeners a little tickler about this year's course now? Come on. Well, you know, generally when <laughs> I build kidding. these courses, I, uh, I definitely, for me, you know, everyone's got their own flavor, of course. You've seen some years where it's what appears to be more of a hunter-type course flowing. And no matter, how, no matter what you build in that arena on that Sunday, the minute you say the word medal finals, those kids are nervous, they're going to make mistakes. Uh, it, it becomes a whole different ball game. For me, when I build those courses, it's a lot about rideability and adjustability. I want I want to see the horses lengthen and shorten. And when you're talking at that level and those top riders, and for me, those classes are about a building block towards the Grand Prix level and to the show jumping. So for me, it's about lengthening and shortening. And and the first year I built it, right off the bat, away from the end gate, the first jump was a triple bar. And it was a very forward distance. And then right after that, straight on the same line, it was a very short distance. So, again, the first line sort of set the tone. You, you know, again, nobody got – I don't think there was one person that stopped or fell off at the first line, but it really separated them right off the bat. So, for right. me, that is the tone, and that's going to sort of be the, the flavor of the course, you know, being able to lengthen and being able to shorten. So the kids do not have to go out and jump their father's convertible. Is that what you're saying? No, I, I don't really <laughs> believe in that. I, I don't. I don't like tricks and gimmicks. Uh, I, I don't train that way. I, I don't believe in that. Uh, you know, I, I think in general, you know, a lot of the equitation they they dot every I and cross every T and maybe do more than they might need to do. But uh, yeah, I'm not a I'm a gimmicky type. Uh, builder i would say for that class i'm not really a course builder but on that day i'm i'm designing or building that course but uh uh, there will be no gimmicks good that's good to know so what is your least favorite part of of uh judging this class since you've done it this is you're a veteran of judging this class my least favorite part is nothing i i i have to tell you i love it the first time I judged it, again, I judged it with Billy Maroney. Uh, as anybody would be, I was nervous. I was, as I said, I had my small R. It's a, it's a lot of responsibility. It's a very important class for these kids, for trainers, for everybody. Uh, so for sure, I was very nervous. I, I don't think I slept a wink the night before. Right. When I arrived at the show that morning, Billy and I pulled in at the exact same time, and we both got out of our cars and... He said, oh, my God, I was so nervous I didn't sleep a wink last night. And I said, yeah, me either. And That's I great. have to tell you, we that year was so good. And unfortunately, the USCF offices are closed on Sunday. And when we had to come down to pick our top, I don't remember now if it was top 20 or top 25, whatever it was, I wanted to call back five more. I said, the class was so good, this bottom group is separated by 0.5. No kidding. Yeah, I mean, they were that good. Wow. So I said, I want to call back an extra five. And at the time, Marion Maybank, 
were scribing for us, and she said, oh, I don't know if it's allowed, and blah, 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 and this and that. I said, make a phone call. Of course, we couldn't get a hold of anybody, and I said, I'm going to take responsibility. This is going to ride on my shoulders. We're taking an extra five. They were that good. And we did. To this day, we never got any heat for it. It was great. I have to tell you, after we called back to top group and we worked them off, even during the workup, Billy and I were on the edge of our seats. If, if they would have sent another 30 horses in the ring, we were totally into it. There was not one thing that we didn't like about it. There wasn't, it wasn't a long day for us. It was, I mean, we were so into the class. And again, when I did it the second time, it was the same thing. I mean, it, you're, you're so into the class, you're so focused. And I, you know, I really, I get up for those big classes. I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I'm into the course that I designed, uh, I mean, yes, I watch these kids a little bit throughout the year, but I'm so busy at the jumper rings and hunter rings and at the regular shows. I write so much. I'm not over there seeing those kids all the time. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a real honor to be asked to judge those classes and it's exciting to, to see those kids ride. And, you know, again, I'm just, I'm so excited about those classes. I can't say there's anything that I do not like about judging the class. Well, I'm a new judge, and I don't know much, but I do know that that's what it's supposed to be like. So that's wonderful to hear that. And we really thank you for your time today and for walking us through the experience of judging the medal finals. I'll see you there, and good luck. I'll thank you at any time. It was my pleasure. Thanks. Don't you love opening your mailbox and seeing something in there you actually want? Something in there that isn't a bill, political mail, or a donation request? something you want. Subscribe to The Plaid Horse Magazine and we'll deliver that feeling nine times a year. That's right, you can subscribe to The Plaid Horse Magazine. That way you'll never miss an issue. Sign up at theplaidhorse.com. Thank you for listening to the first episode of The Plaidcast. We better get back to work on the October issue for Indoors. I better get back to work writing the really good editorial for The Plaid Horse Magazine. So I want all of you listeners to pick up the September issue and the October issue and every issue thereafter and read the plaid horse. Don't just look at the pretty pictures. Piper, we made it through our first podcast, uh, much to my surprise after all the angst of, oh my God, I can't do this. So it was really fun. And I would like to thank Tucker Erickson and Jimmy Toronto for giving their time to us. It was very interesting dialogue. So thank you all for listening. And you can subscribe to the Plaid Horse on thepladhorse.com. Um, all the links for today's guests and show notes are on horsesinthemorning.com. And you can follow Horses in the Morning on Facebook. Just search Horses in the Morning. You can have all of the Horse Radio Network shows with you wherever you go with uh, the free app for iPhone and Android. Go to your app store and search Horse Radio Network. And if you miss the live show, you can listen to the recorded version wherever you listen to podcasts horsesinthemorning.com, Stitcher, iTunes, and you never need to miss an episode. Thank you to our sponsors, eponaexchange.com, where horses are sold. And please join the herd. Go to thepladhorse.com and sign up for our email newsletters, subscribe to the magazine, and find us on Facebook and Instagram at the Horse Mag. We are going to do a podcast every, what is it, Piper? Every? The fourth Saturday of every month on Horses in the Morning. So until then, it's Sissy Wicks and Piper Clem. And remember, just add leg and wear plaid. <laughs>